Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Supreme Decisions Legal Minute Podcast. And this is your host, Supreme Decisions. And today, there are going to be several things that we're going to speak about. One is going to be what I kind of labeled Dante's Inferno. Because what we're having now is something that's going to be brought to us, is going to be brought to light for the most part. And where police procedure is actually going to be put on trial, not once, not twice, but in several instances, literally in the past two weeks. But first, I'm going to give you a couple things. First is Urban Gyro's Mediterranean Street Food. We have your gyros, we have your bowls, we have your loaded fries. There's El Paso's new favorite, Big Ass Taco. Hashtag Celebrate Flavor. Made fresh daily. 1550 Zaragoza Drive, Suite 202, El Paso, Texas, 79936. And their grand opening is going to be May 3rd, 2021. So go get your big ass tacos from Urban Gyro. We also have a shout out that's going to the supporters for supporting platforms of the Supreme Decisions Legal Minute podcast, which starts off with iHeartRadio. Thank you guys for putting out and supporting the Supreme Decisions Legal Minute podcast. We're also going to Apple Podcasts, who actually started the original support and the first ever platform the Supreme Decisions Legal Minute podcast was ever on. Google Play, Anchor, Spotify, who has the Supreme Decisions Legal Minute podcast in three different countries. Stitcher, Comcast, CastBox, Podcast Addict, and Pandora. Thank you guys for supporting the Supreme Decisions Legal Minute podcast. And I want you guys to appreciate it because we are going to keep going. We're going to keep growing. And now, a couple weeks ago, I spoke to you guys about the Police Reform Act or Police Reform Bill that was being proposed. And it's H.R. 1280. And the thing was, why are the police want to stop this bill? Well... Right now, we have the most public police trial that we've had in a while since the Rodney King beatings, for, for the most part. And it's with David Chopin. And I want you to look at something, because I'm going to bring up a couple of things. One of which is why they were picking Wadir. Because you understand what I was talking about whenever you're picking the jury. You're picking people that's going to be most susceptible to the story or most receptive to the story that you're telling. In the midst of doing that, there was an award of $27 million to the Floyd family in regards to the wrongful death filing um, against David Chauvin and the city. Well, this is something that influenced several jurors that Chauvin was guilty because, again, why would you pay a record amount for something if it's what was proper? Now, I even spoke about the fact that Department of Policy allows for this Brazilian jiu-jitsu chokehold because, again, it's one of the seven non-lethal weapons that are available to you. 
two police officers rather, in which a one minute and 30 seconds is a maximum amount of time for this hold. Well, in the case of George Floyd and David Chauvin, David Chauvin was on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds. I said something that might have alarmed a few people because I talked about David Chauvin was not on, on trial for murdering George Floyd. He was on trial or is on trial for the way he murdered him. Because what these holes, what these things require or allow or make them allowable is the active resisting. And I spoke about seven minutes and 16 seconds being too long beyond depart written department policy. It was stated that Chauvin had violated written department policy. And also, if you actually go back and look at the video, and I know most of us have not because of how horrific it is, there is no active resisting because David Chauvin is actually able to put his hands in his pocket. I'm going to say that one more time. There was no active resisting because David Chauvin was able to put his hands in his pocket. There was no active resistance because David Chauvin was able to put his hands in his pockets. Now, during this week, or past week, we also had the trial of three other officers where they actually beat up a um, fellow officer that was doing a protest. And the crazier part about this to me was that these officers are only facing 10 years. Two of them were fired. One is still working. They're in St. Louis. And the officers are Dustin Boone, Christopher Myers, and the officer that's still working is Stephen Corte. They actually beat up a young man, and their excuse for doing it was, we thought he was a protester. Not that he was resisting, not that he was doing anything wrong, other than doing the one thing that he is allowed to do. They're on trial as well. They're also going to verdict, and nobody's in uproar about that. I thought that was kind of funny. But then we looked at Kim Porter, or Potter, I think I, I, think I pronounced that wrong. Kim Potter, who for some reason couldn't tell the difference between her service pistol and a taser. Not sure how that's possible, but she pulled it off. Now, Kim Potter was charged with secondary manslaughter and the death of Dante Wright, which is part of why I call this Dante's Inferno, because we're also looking at kind of an avalanche of things that have been going on. Because, again, I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, a young woman, she was awarded $7 million for issues that happened with Chicago police. There were other people that had awards in the last couple of weeks that toppled, I believe, $2 million for the most part. 
in several different cases that were pertaining to improper policing. Now, Kim Potter was charged because she actually resigned. She was not fired for her actions. Just as these officers that were that beat up this young man, who was a police officer as well, two of them, they got fired, but only after pressure. But the third one, he got to keep working. And when you're looking at the ideals of what's going forward, is she was charged with manslaughter, second degree manslaughter. But civilly, she can also be tried for wrongful death. Now I'm gonna give you a couple things on this. The one thing about Kim was the fact that she said, I fired because I thought I had my service pistol. I mean, I thought I had my taser, not my service pistol. Well, oops is an actual sign of negligence. Now, many of you probably don't remember. I, I did a couple of videos where I talked about the loss of qualified immunity. One is done through ignorance. Yeah, ignorance. The other one is done through a willful act. Well, ignorance is also disguised as ugly head as negligence. When someone fires a pistol thinking it's a taser, is labeled as negligence because they're unable to do their job properly due to ignorance. So she's written that down, so she is guilty of the wrongful death. But now the funnier part about this is whenever you look at the Minnesota statute for second-degree manslaughter, I'm going to read, a person who causes the death of another by any of the following means is guilty of manslaughter in the second degree. By the person's culpable negligence. I'm going to say that one more time because I, I, I don't want to lose you. By the person's culpable negligence whereby the person creates an unreasonable risk and consciously takes charges of causing death or great bodily harm to another. This is where I talk about the conduct of the police officer. Here's where I talk about the training of the police officer. Here rears its ugly head of ignorance by the police officer. Now, an unreasonable risk, a consciously taken chances of causing death or great bodily harm to another. These are things that I speak of whenever I talk about you have one deadly weapon. You have access to six to seven non-deadly, or as they put this, non-lethal weapons. But their mindset because of their training goes to the lethal weapon. Now, the crazier part is 
I actually believe Kim Potter. I believe her. I believe she honestly believed she had her taser. And here's why. I've said it once, I've said it twice, I've said it a thousand times. The brain only remembers two things. It's pleasure and pain. Most of us don't even get an idea of exactly what that is because most of the time our memories are substitutions or things that we've kind of plugged into what we believe happened. We kind of put fill in blanks. Well, I tell people the reason why it's more difficult for a police officer to pull the taser out versus the gun is they have a mandatory amount of training that they do with the shooting, with their, that lethal weapon. Because when you pull it out, it's pretty much go time. You're put in a position where it's life or death. Now, if you're taught that everybody is putting you in that position, your first mindset is that you are in that position. So her first mindset, she was in a life or death situation. Although she was also the only person that had grabbed a weapon. There was three officers there. She was the only officer that had grabbed a weapon. There were three officers there. She was the only one that had grabbed a weapon. Now, she kept yelling, I'm going to tase you, I'm going to tase you, I'm going to tase you, I'm going to tase you. Why? Because before you can get certified to carry that taser, you have to be tased. So because your body, your mind knows what that feels like, it is more difficult to dispense that than it is once it is received. Now, you say, well, that doesn't make any sense because a gun is going to be a little bit, little bit extra. Well, they're not being shot before they're given that gun. They don't have nearly as many hours of training on the taser as they do that lethal weapon. I'm going to say that one. they don't have nearly as many hours of training on that non-lethal weapon as they do that lethal one. Now, here's the thing that I always love, because Mike Tyson said it best, and the examples I have are just phenomenal about it. Let's put it that way. Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Then you see who they are. And I've spoken about Ricky Hatton. Ricky Hatton was Mr. Come At You, full barrel, don't care what you're doing. He's just going to maul through you. He fought this guy named Floyd Mayweather Jr. Floyd knocked him out. Ricky Hatton then went to be trained by Floyd's father, Floyd Sr. He had a fight. Ricky Hatton looked phenomenal doing the shoulder roll. He was doing all the Floyd stuff, which made Floyd such a marketable fighter. Well, he then fights this guy named Manny Pacquiao. What happens is Manny Pacquiao punches Ricky Hatton in the mouth. Bow! Ricky Hatton went back to exactly who Ricky Hatton was. Ricky Hatton had more practice being Ricky Hatton than he had 
being Floyd Mayweather Jr. Kim Potter had more practice at grabbing that pistol than she did grabbing that taser. Kim Potter had more practice at being scared than she had being brave. Kim Potter had more practice at living in fear than she had living without fear. Because again, even if, even, I'm gonna give you an instance because I'm gonna give this to the police apologists. I constantly say that pretty much all officers are trained pretty much the same way, right? I'm gonna give you that. The standout is somewhere in the mix of that, while Kim received that same training, she received it differently. I'm gonna give you that. She received that same training differently because like I said, there were three other officers, three officers there in total. Two men who did not grab a weapon at all and Kim. Kim not only grabbed a weapon, she grabbed the wrong one she yelled out the wrong thing. This then set off pretty much a slew of protests. Now, a lot of people were like, oh, well, everybody's making Dante a modern. No, not at all. However, I am going to speak to the fact that there are people getting tired. They're getting tired. They're even using the Chavin um, trial as a means of it. Because here's, here's what I want to give you context at. I don't know exactly what happened or how it happened or when it happened, but people got tired of horrible policing. They grew to a point where Shooting at police officers seems to be the thing now. Because in the last two weeks, Chicago has had six officers not only shot, but multiple killed. There's, I believe, been three here in Texas. And right now, we are at a higher pace of police murders. And I, I, I'm going to call it spade to spade. And attempted murders than in the last 10 years. Like, they are flying by, and we're in, what, month four, month five? Because people are growing tired. So when you look at the David Chauvin case, you look at the fact that David Chauvin wasn't by himself. Just like these other three officers that are being tried together, they weren't by themselves. Kim wasn't by herself, but Kim is the only one being charged. But see, now you have to look at this thing where I talk about, which I'm going to be speaking about in the master class, is defense strategy. Because the easy part is, the three officers of Philadelphia, since you're not getting a lot of press on that because of David Chauvin, thank you, they have an opportunity to be found not guilty without consequence. I'm going to say that one more time. They have an opportunity to be found not guilty without consequence. Now, the reason why all three of them are tied together and they are tried together because a prosecutor, prosecutorial tactic is to make sure if one look guilty, all of them are guilty because it's more difficult to separate guilt. Now, in the David Chauvin trial, David is by himself. 
Why? Because the other three understand. Everybody remembers David. Everybody, everybody looks at David as a criminal. Now, can you paint a picture where he's not? That's all I want. Can you paint a picture where he's not? And that's what they're hoping for. They're hoping that a picture can be painted by his defense attorney that he's not. Because if he's not, then the rest of them aren't. But if they're all sitting there together like they were the day of George Floyd's murder, they look guilty. Why? Because they're complicit. But if you try them all together and the one person looks guilty, all of them look guilty. But in the Philadelphia trial, nobody looks guilty because they're all standing in unity and nobody knows who they are. I'm going to say that one more time. The world knows David Chauvin. Nobody knows these three officers that beat up a fellow officer in Philadelphia. Nobody's going to be enraged by what happens in Philadelphia because nobody's paying attention to it. Just like most people didn't even realize that George Floyd wasn't the first person killed the day George Floyd died. I'm going to say he wasn't the first one killed by police officers that day. He wasn't the first person on video killed by police officers that day. Most people don't even speak about Michael Ramos. Police weren't even, wasn't even looking for Michael Ramos. Police wasn't even looking for a person just fitting the description of Michael Ramos. But still, yeah, here we are. We're not talking about Michael Ramos. We're talking about George Floyd. We're not talking about how good anything was or how bad anything was. We're talking about the same thing that happened to one, happened to five others. But we don't even know who those other five are. We're looking at one trial, and we can't even point out the other ones that actually have the exact same pretty much M.O. But people are getting tired. And when we're talking about this, it's, I'm going to give you a little bit of an education. Because even though they've gone into deliberations and I honestly, I honestly believe, like most of these people believe, that the jury that was picked, can you see with closing arguments that they're going to need time to deliberate? Absolutely. Why? Because his defense attorney, David Chauvin's defense attorney, was not specific. He gave vague ideologies that people can relate to. He gave vague ideologies that people can relate to. One of the things he did not do was personalize David Chauvin. And David took on a right that most people that I often tell you should take. Shut the fuck up. You're grown. You don't have to explain yourself. Here's the problem. This is also a double-edged sword because most times jurors don't like attorneys. 
But they do like to hear the person that's being accused say they're innocent. They don't like the words not guilty. They like to hear the words innocent. While his defense attorney said that, he's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. They didn't hear from David. Now, did David have to say that? No. Because again, his attorney left it to a point where it was vague. Why? Because he understood the audience he was talking to. He understood the vision of how he was painting his picture because that was part of his strategy. Now, is there enough evidence to go against it? Uh, yeah, they're counting on it. They're counting that the painting can be skewed by the evidence because not all of what we saw got in and some of the stuff we didn't know existed got in. And because people believe there is a spoon, people believe they can bend the spoon with their mind, they're expecting the liberations to not only go from Monday, they're expecting it to go for seven days. They're preparing for it now. They're letting them stay until 9.30 p.m. and they're expecting seven days. And that includes Saturday and Sunday. They're going to sequester the jury. And they're going to allow questions from the jury. Now, here's the thing that I found interesting that most people probably don't know. But it was something that also came up during my trial. The one thing was, one, what questions can the jurors ask? Somebody told me, oh, that's a stupid question. No, I think it's a great question because the first question I was asked about myself was how long had I been a realtor? And I smiled. John Melvin turned around and looked at me because he wasn't sure why I was smiling. So Courtney looks over at me, which was the judge, and she goes, she goes, well, what, 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 are, you, what are you smiling about? I looked over at her. I leaned into my microphone. I said, we can't tell them anything because that's not in the evidence. Now, why did I say that? Because as a juror, you can only deliberate on what's in the evidentiary package that's sent back with you. So if they can only deliberate on what's been admitted as evidence. Now, here's the great part about that. One thing I constantly tell people is, don't turn over an affidavit because it does not make it into the record because in order for an affidavit to be entered into the record, it has to be read into the record. You can submit it. means nothing. It doesn't do you any good because nobody cares what you think. Nobody cares until it's read into the record, which is why police officers, whenever they're coming to trial, they come as experts, not as witnesses. I'm going to say that one. They're coming in the form of an expert, not as a witness through an amicus brief. But I'll get into that later because, oh, I did a video on that. Now, the reason why that's important is because 
you have to know that as well as your opponent because let's say I didn't know that. Let's say I didn't. Like they weren't asking about me. What if it was something that was to the other side's advantage by answering that question? I then give up my advantage because I don't know how the jury works. Because it all is done via process. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there that, for whatever reason, spend their time kind of nitpick some of the shit that I say. Or try to take apart something. Oh, well, you believe there must be a process. Everything that you do has a process. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. I don't have to like it. You don't have to like it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Because everything you do from how you get up and tie your shoe has a process on how you do it. Some people call it a routine. But understand, it's still done through deliberate action. Those deliberate actions allow for things to be as they are and to create expectations. It also helps manage expectations. So with that being said, there are certain things that can and cannot be answered when a jury asks a question. Now, the next part of that, are they limited to the amount of questions? No, they're not. But I think we were only able to answer one question, which was, it's in the jury packet. It's in the evidence jury packet. Because, again, if it's not presented, we cannot answer it. Neither side. Because if it does get answered, it can be set forth as a mistrial or jury tampering. Next question is, how long will the jury deliberate? Now, most of this, like I said, they're expecting the jurors to put a job in for the most part because we're talking about generally court or trial starts about nine-ish. Let's say 9, 30, 10 o'clock. They're expecting them to go deep into the night. They're also expecting them to go deep into the day because there was a lot of evidence put up because most people don't realize every time somebody gets on the stand that's evidence every time something is submitted when someone's on the stand to kind of read it into the record oh just like the affidavit to talk about it takes something where those people have to read it to have to go over it to have to examine it and that become that begins to pile up now are you going to have a bunch of them that go in there with a preconceived notion? Absolutely. In this one, to be honest, just, I'm just being honest. Do I think his lawyer did him a disservice by not submitting some things? I'm definitely going to say I would have done things differently if I was representing him. I would have done things a lot differently. Now, that does not mean his defense was not proper for his audience. Because one of the things he has to do is know thyself. He has to understand who he's presenting to. These are things I've said before. You have to understand who's hearing it. You have to understand who's accepting it. You also have to be able to deliver it how they're hearing and accepting it. I believe he did that. 
I believe he did that at a level that was necessary for this young man to possibly go home. And I know there's a lot of people that don't want to hear that. And I don't blame you. I don't, I don't want him going home. But even the worst of us deserve a vigorous defense because most of us don't get that. Do I believe his, his defense was vigorous? I think his defense was necessary. I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room where he could actually go back and say, ah, yeah, he did me wrong. And what does this, what does this mean for us? I'm going to give you something. And then I'm actually close for today. Or at, close, at least close this issue. And we're going to talk about a few other things. I was talking to a young man a couple of days ago. And I was telling him about the, the matter of fact, I was telling him about this podcast. And he kind of smiled. And one of the things he said was, the problem is most people don't understand the system itself. And I said, okay, what do you mean? He said, there are several facets to the system. I said, all right, give them to me. He said, you have the system itself consist of the people, the police, the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the judges. I said, okay, I can agree with that. He said, so each part is only a monochrome of the sum, or the whole, as he put it. I said, okay. I said, so elaborate. He said, when the people don't fight back, and the police aren't trained properly. The prosecutors only want money and wins. The defense doesn't defend and judges don't care is why the system is broken. The people don't fight back. The police don't do law or don't know law. The prosecutor only wants wins. The defense attorneys don't defend and the judges don't care. If every facet of the system is not working properly, how can we expect the system not to be broken? And I never looked at it that way because as a people, we the people are part of the problem. When I talked about the protesters, 97% of those protesters not fighting back when they were tearing up and fighting, that's part of the problem. When you have the police who are ill-trained, ill-trained, 
and forced to stay police. And I do mean it that way, because the police unions are forcing those that are in charge not to be able to fire them. And the prosecutors who only care about wins, who only care about convictions, they don't care about innocence. They don't even care about law. And the defense attorneys that'll tell you, why do you want to upset the prosecutor? Why do you want to ask for that? Why do you want to follow that organic code? Why? Why do you want to do that? So they don't defend and they allow the prosecutor to wait you out. And then the judges got their eyes closed because they don't care either way. The system is broken from the bottom up. I watched the, I'm gonna close with this, cause I watched the TikTok video. And she ran, this young lady, I'm actually gonna, I'm waiting for a response cause I wanna do a YouTube video about it. Or a video that I'm gonna post on all the 40 platforms. She spoke about the negligent actions of not one, not two, not three, not four, but a multitude of officers. And then she, she concluded with, let me get this straight. You can either be incompetent and remain a police officer or we're just not going to train you properly. I was blown away because it went right back to what I talked about before. When everybody was hollering, defund the police, defund the police, defund the police, defund the police, it was almost like if it put a beat to it, it would probably have been a number one hit. No police station was defunded. Police officers that should have been fired weren't. And every action or every act or bill or proposal that came across any desk that's been made open to the public, none of them spoke about the problem, which was the poorly trained officers. I even watched a video yesterday where the Atlanta police officers actually have a nonprofit group going out to tell <laughs> to tell those that are driving in Atlanta how to deal with police. But they're not asking the police to deal with the citizens properly. I want you to, I want you to understand that. They actually paid someone to put together a task force, so to speak, to train people how to deal with police versus actually taking that same money and retraining the police officers on how to deal with the citizens who they actually took an oath to protect and serve. Now my question to you is what I want you to think about today. Why is it if we know they're not trained properly? Do we never ask for them to be retrained? That's one. And then two, why can we never say that a police officer is wrong? Why can we never ask them to correct their behavior? 
there was a young man in Dallas that I I was going to do part of this podcast on. He was killing people as a police officer. The police knew about it. They quote unquote couldn't prove it. But they continued to let him police and patrol the beats where these killings were occurring for three years. But when we ask for something, when we ask for transparency, when we're asking for things, we're wrong for asking. When we make note of, because again, if I'm going to walk to the other side of the street with the dude with the sagging pants, why is it that I can't be afraid of someone that I know has a low IQ and is trigger happy? Why can't I be weary of that guy too? Or in this case, that young lady. If I'm going to be instinctual about the guy with the sagging pants and dreads, why can't I have that same instinct about the bastard in the blue? Because where I'm from, they, my mom and daddy told me don't get involved in gangs. But I want you to think about that. Why is it that we never correct the police officer's behavior? But we expect better from those that are around the police when the police are the ones that actually made a choice to serve. 